You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Greetings, pilgrims. We're heading into summer mode here on the show, and we have just a few episodes left before we launch season three in the fall. Coming up, Brendan and I will jump on the microphones and we'll chat the history of family systems theory, Murray Bowen, and we'll also share two or three key tools from him that any leader can use. And then I'm actually going to do an episode discussing a lesser known book called Friedman's Fables. Ed Friedman is a big name in family systems world, but not many people know his book Friedman's Fables. I think it's his best book, so we'll hit an episode discussing the book, and I'll even read a fable or two on the podcast. To wrap up the season, I'm going to be joined by my wife and my kids, and we're going to have our kids chat about systems theory, what it's like to use it as a teen or a preteen, and what it's like to be raised by a systems theory fanatic and a therapist. But hey, today I'm thrilled to be joined by my guest, Kathy Escobar. Kathy's a fellow faith leader right here in Broomfield. She's the co-founder and co-pastor of The Refuge, a wonderful faith community that's one of our partners in our church. And Kathy's probably best known as an author, a speaker, blogger. I think as the people who know Kathy personally would describe her as a healer. Kathy's written a few books, uh, most notably Down We Go and also Faith Shift. And she's helped countless people navigate pain the very common experience of doubt and disorientation in faith. And Kathy has a point of view and a way of speaking, and I think most importantly, a posture that the wider faith community desperately needs. We get into all manner of topics on this episode, but I begin by asking Kathy about starting the Refuge Faith Community and what it was like. Well, what's interesting is when you come from systems that are like that, People are used to relying on things a certain way. So even when we planted the refuge, there were some people who gave advice that would replicate that same old thing in a new way, and we really resisted it. Yeah. How long did it take, do you think, for people at the refuge to really catch on to what this is? Well, we we started, you know, it's always interesting. I think a lot of leaders feel this, like there was a lot of energy at the beginning. And so let's just say these are these are probably fairly ha- accurate numbers. First first couple weeks or so, a couple hundred people, until we put everybody at tables and made them talk to each other, <laughs> and then the next week half would come back because it felt so uncomfortable. Yeah. And so then we would do another crazy thing where you know everyone had to take off their shoes or something. Another half wouldn't come. So I say this, that what happened is it shook out over time because the people who stayed could live with that kind of rawness and vulnerability and just weirdness, awkwardness. They were okay with being uncomfortable. So it kind of happened in the first year in some ways. Um, We also skipped around to some different locations, which was super stressful. That's right, you were in the Grange for quite a while there. That, that. We were in uh, three places before, before the Grange. Before the Grange, yeah. Yeah, three places before the Grange. So that was our most stable, which we were there for five years. We've been in this facility here for five and a half, almost six. So, But in those first couple years, so it, that helped to shake things out. Mm. It, so those things form because they're obviously not coming for a great building, they're not getting the most amazing kids thing, they're not, you know, we're doing not typical preaching, teaching in the way people are used to, or consistent music, like the things that a lot of people thought of related to church. So it, it kind of early on, I think they knew it was different, um, but it was also confusing even as a leader, because even though I knew in my heart, like I know I do not want to replicate that thing. I had no question about that. There weren't a lot of models for a different way. Right. So I think sometimes uh, we question ourselves, like, is this the right direction? And um, always in the deepest place of my heart, I always said yes, because there are all those other options still exist. There's plenty of those. That's right. The world does not need another one one of those, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. 
So people who know you, I think, would describe you as a, as a, you have like a powerful pastoral healing, I don't know quite what the next word is, but people seek you out for a blessing. You're just known as a powerful leader. Do you see yourself that way? If so, when did you start to realize, this is how God's wired me, this is my contribution? Well, I would probably use different language than a powerful leader. Yeah, what, what <laughs> language would you use? Because that what's associated with that is some kind of um, just not so many healing things, I would say. It feels unsafe. When you say powerful leader, you're like, oh, that feels yeah, unsafe. Yeah, because to me, a lot of things really, when I think of powerful leader, because power, I think, is the conversation always in these, any moment, that there's all these issues about power, uh-huh. that the kind of power we know Kingdom, uh-huh. Jesus, power, reality of God, power is actually not the same kind right. of power. Subversive, give it away. Right. So when I hear powerful leader, I kind of think set apart, set above, strong in the way that is like I got this, and so that's usually not. Language. Let me let me push on you. <laughs> I see you as a powerful. Ah! Oh, Shoot. I see you as a powerful leader, and I see that people come to you needing your blessing. Is that uncomfortable? No, no. Yeah, I, yeah that's no, what that I mean. doesn't bother me. Yes, um, you're comfortable with that. Yeah, How no. How long I, have you been comfortable with that? I have been comfortable with that for a long time. Okay. So, and that that was true for me even before I was kind of a lay leader at a church. You know, before these last two pastoral things. So, I think what happened to me, how that what did happen, is when I started telling my story, a chunk of years before that something radically shifted for me in terms of relationship with people. And I think because some people, when they saw me, saw this kind of put together, strong, um, you know, good Christian wife and mother and participant in church things. And so they really thought I had it more together than I did. And inside I was a hot mess, hot mess, totally divided, Outside, inside, two different things. Yeah. And so when I started doing some, a lot more intentional personal work, which is about 25 years ago now, it feels like yesterday sometimes, and it was 25 years ago, of being in a conservative church in kind of a weird little group that was honest, led by a person there who was in seminary working on her counseling degree and creating a container for greater health personally with each other and with God. And when that happened and I started to be more integrated, that's what the language I would use, I started just owning my story more and telling the truth about things that I struggled with, telling things about shameful things I had done and been done to me and how I didn't didn't feel confident, even though I look confident. Yeah, You know, all those things that were... Um, hard for me to do but became more natural and then universally in all the conversations everyone said me too me too i know that feeling i know shame i'm pretending and i'm not really doing that well i feel lonely i feel afraid all the things and so when that started happening there was a connection all those years ago to like shared story and then i think what happened in leadership is going, those spaces will not get created unless someone does it. Yeah. It does not happen naturally ever. You yeah. know that. Yeah. Like, it just takes so much intention. It's so easy to keep your game face on and go to church and yeah. go home and be dying inside and get divorced and have nobody know, uh, you know, because yeah. you just don't show up anymore. Yeah. Instead of having places where you can say, my marriage isn't working and I might get a divorce and I'm really afraid and I don't know what to do. And those were the kinds of spaces that we created all those years ago. And that kind of has just been a little bit magnetic to people because they are longing for it and can't find it very often. So I would just say I've owned that a little bit more as like I consider myself kind of a a catalyzer of healing. Like I don't make the healing happen, but like can you help ignite it? Yeah, create the space for Mm -hmm. it, cultivate it, Mm -hmm. nurture it, trust that it doesn't come fast, but it will come if you keep 
modeling it and then giving people a chance to try and live with their um, vulnerability afterwards. Because, you know, that's what happens, you know, this too, that, you know, you share and then you get um, tromped on by a group, fixed, (laughs) scripturized, all kinds of crazy things, pity, um, and (laughs) then you don't ever want to do it again. Right. And so if you can kind of keep the containers a little safer, I think over the, everyone feels vulnerable. I feel vulnerable all the time. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I know I can keep coming back and practicing with mm-hmm. other people. So that's kind of pastorally where I land. It's just sort of like being a fellow struggler. Right. But with a little more responsibility. Yeah. And maybe a little bit more experience. Because now I, have, I do have a lot of experience. Yeah. I, I can count on it now. I'm not as afraid as I used to be. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. I, I, my chaplaincy experience put me into some significant faith shift. And then from then I went to a really academically rigorous seminary. They really prided themselves on a broad range of theology and thinking. And, and so I came out of seminary with massive doubt. And then into a megachurch. <laughs> Uh, and I remember, actually, I, 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 I do have to just say it was phenomenal. My very first sermon at this church, I just got up and told the church that I'm not always sure that God's real. Mm. And the lead pastor, to his phenomenal credit, said, keep doing that. Oh, it's amazing. It was amazing. And he, he was an amazing guy. Um, but you, it sounds like you had that same um, unraveling or something in the late 90s, if, if I'm doing my math correctly. Mm-hmm. There weren't a whole lot of people doing that back then. Did you feel alone or did you feel like there were, like I attribute my faith to Frederick Buechner. Right. That when I was really free falling, it was him and Philip Yancey and some of those voices that Kathleen Norris. Mm -hmm. Was that your experience too? Ours was, so mine was a little like 93 on and, you know, I was in, we moved to Denver in 97. So I was in that group in San Diego for three and a half years, pretty solid consistently. I mean, a lot happened in those years. And formative voices for me, you know, were Brennan Manning, mm, sure. Henry Nowen, yeah. um, changes that heal, you know, the cloud and towns and things, just being more honest, you know, and Lamott, those kinds oh, yeah. of like just more expansive, more real, more honest. Um, books that we read together in like in church and that group got kicked out of the church I mean it's really important to know that for not using the bible enough and the truth is we were being transformed you know we read Harriet Lerner's The Dance of Anger all those years ago and that was a really not a popular Christian book because <laughs> it's not a Christian book yeah. and um and we we all needed that because as Christian women we had nothing in the area of what to do with those real feelings by anger. And so, um, yeah, we were a little bit before, like way before Brene Brown, you know, we were kind of talking shame and vulnerability and all those things before she gave such amazing language, what she helped with and why I love her so much. She really helped bring it into layman's terms. So like people, the push that we always got, and I still get, not so much here, but just in wider circles is, do we really have to do that? You know, there's work to be done. There's people to be saved. <laughs> it's too hard. You know, navel gazing. Well, I think like also that. some people I think see this kind of work that you do as a phase rather than a lifestyle. Yeah. Like, haven't you grown out of that phase of being vulnerable and being in need? Right. Right. Totally. And this yeah. is why you know, twelve steps are really important to me. Yeah. And before I started working at care pastoral, where we did a lot of recovery things, I had kind of worked the steps without knowing they were the steps. And then I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. Um, and so I had gone to Alateen. You know, my stepdad was an alcoholic too. So there was, my mom had went gone to Al-Anon. So I knew what the 12 steps were. You know, the serenity prayer were like plaques all over our house. But I didn't really know them personally as in like really knowing them till I went to work. And then I found that all that healing work I had been doing actually fit into the framework Mm. with just some different language. And so a big thing, the push, the church, quote unquote, a lot all over the place, not just the churches I worked at, but also just they kind of say the same thing. When are people going to kind of get well? And um, recovery people know that you're going to be in recovery forever. 
I'm going to put my butt in the chair. I literally have put my butt in the chair for 25 years and I don't see that changing because I need to be with other people who are um, being honest and growing and transforming and wrestling and telling the truth. So people don't like that. Right. They really actually want to graduate. That's right. I think they do. And then, well, that was a tough phase, but thank God that's over. That's Rather right. than this is a rhythm of life. Or, yeah, it's just know. part of it's just part of it. And I'm okay with saying I do better when I go. Yeah. And um, and the people that I know, I mean, I'm going to be kind of honest, who are in recovery are sometimes looked down on by upstanding church citizens. Especially if they fall off the wagon. Let's take an alcoholic. Okay. Yeah. One or two times in rehab is like a hero three plus times there's something wrong with them that's right? right that's how it works yeah, it's so true did you ever see the um brenna manning published an article in christianity today uh, during hurricane katrina and it's my favorite of his articles um because the article was about how during the floods he was trying to make the point that anyone can make a small difference and he talked about how he rescued his senior citizen neighbors and saved their lives during the flood mm. At the top of the article, the editor has a paragraph. Hey, everyone, Brennan called last night and said this whole article's a lie. He made it all up. Oh, I didn't know that story. It's unbelievable to me. He's back on the bottle, and he just asked us to pray for him. But the fact is, we're about to go to print, and we can't pull it. So we just want you to know we're really sorry. I thought it was amazing. That is amazing. i got to look this up. My favorite part was that he made that call. Like, that's what I loved. Yeah. I loved that he was a present tense struggler his whole life. Yeah. He never said back when I was a drunk. Mm-hmm. And then he proved that, like, this was late in his life. He's calling them the night before saying, sorry, I'm a liar. Yeah. I thought it was. No, I love that. And, you know, the part I love about Brendan Manning, he's the very first person that kind of brought um, the idea of paradox. Yeah. You know, to the surface, because that was yeah. in the Ragamuffins. Yeah, Ragamuffin um, Gospel, yeah. And it's so important, and Richard Rohr kind of fleshes it out mm-hmm. more. And that was so forming to me. Yeah. And it really is, is in leadership, too. Just everyone's paradox. Yeah. And I don't including really... Including the leader. Including me, right. and I don't want it in me, yeah. and I don't want it in my kids. Yeah. I can almost tolerate easily in other people, right. yeah. but in myself and in my kids, it's the hardest. Yeah. But kind of learning to live with those. We're all dark, we're all light, you know, we're all good, we're all bad, we're all strugglers, we're all, you know, over overcomers, uh, whatever language you want to use. They're always in the same container. And like really accepting that is so transforming. And that means you you lie and you tell the truth. Right, right. So here's something I think you can be helpful for our listeners on. Authenticity is all the rage nowadays. So some people are working harder to look authentic, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. <laughs> I don't think I coined the term. I think it's. I think I heard it. Curated authenticity, it's called. Mm. You're you're actually casting a vision for a genuine, holistic life as a leader. I think it would be really helpful to hear from you, Kathy. There are times when you share your life and your pain and your wounds, and it's helpful and vulnerable as a leader. And then there's times where it does damage, and that line is really hard sometimes. Do you have any guidance on when do you hold something for a while before sharing it? When do you share your active present tense pain? When is the difference between when you are now in, you're inflicting on the people you're leading? But you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's a tough dance. It's a tricky one. In general, I would say that I always have a close circle that I share with. That know everything. Yes. Yep. Are they? Are you leading those people? Uh, no. I yeah, mean, we're okay. we're kind of just have our way of being yeah, together. I'm not and, the leader. Yeah, okay. Um, in that that context, it's you know it's over kind of a long story, but I sort of have those people, and I I always tell them I do. And the reason why is because I know every time if I don't, I'm always in danger of what I used to do because that was me. I always kind of tried to, quote unquote, figure it out on my own. And I think by me, you mean that's everyone. I I think. (laughs) I I think so. Okay. And so the discipline of just maybe not, there's not 10 of them. You know, it's a, it, but it's not two 
I probably, you know, it's probably in the three to four range. And so we've had things even with our kids where it's like, I don't want, that's not public. There are hard things that happen as parents with kids growing up, trying to figure out their way. And we want to honor their story, but we're honest with them and say, we really need to make sure that our people know. And, but you can trust a hundred percent. It's not going to go out to the world. It's not going to be used in some example somewhere. You know, we will honor it totally. But we need to tell our truth, too. And so I think kind of finding that has been helpful. And then I don't have to feel the split. So when then I show up, and let's say I'm not telling the whole community something in that moment, I know I'm not being inauthentic because I have shared it out loud. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. You are saying some people know everything, but you are intentionally filtering what you share with the community you lead. They may know these stories later or you you do you're adding that I don't know the word for it, wisdom, I guess. Yeah, and I I guess the one caution I would say is I probably do share more with the wider community than some because of the kind of community that I live in is they can hold it. They're used to it. But I, there's tons of things that I don't share um, all the time because I, you know, we're not, we're not using this as a group all the time where I can share all those things. But I also really want to be careful that it's not like you have two groups always. Because I don't have two groups. Yeah, there's always. a blend and this a bleed. Group, my, my faith community, The Refuge, will in the end know most of those things. Um, it's just sometimes in present tense and then some things and honoring um, other people who yeah. are in the story. That's and the other that thing I heard really is important. if it involves another person, you're less, you're more cautious to hold their story. Yeah, I just yeah. have, you have to. And yeah. I think that that is really important. But I, I'm a big, strong proponent in leadership of being super careful about, I can't tell my people these things in leadership. I don't, I think that's dangerous. Um, but I think the question is, what's the best way, form, how to make sure I'm not split? And they're, what they're getting in relationship with me as a leader is, really is authentic. unorthodox and so usually always and so just like living in that but I know it bugs some people that I don't like say don't say that and I just say thank you for sharing that's interesting that's right unfiltered <laughs> you don't feel any pressure to defend God or mm-hmm. top things up and I, I in my head I do oh do you really <laughs> no 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 I'm not to defend God but I want to go well you know, like, or if you personally disagree with something yeah, someone said, yeah. yeah, no, but nothing related <laughs> yeah. to God because I think yeah. I love that people have some really mm. unique things to bring about it, and they they really don't usually have a chance to speak up in church. Right. And we do have an interactive format, and um, and I'm really glad for that. But as a leader, it is really hard. So, you know, sometimes I go home and I go, should I have said this or done this or like let that go that long? And I think my usually where I land is um, it's not that big of a deal in the big scheme. Yeah, it feels like it in the moment. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow or next week, it's fine. Yeah, people have bigger fish to fry on the whole. Yeah. And if you don't, then it's like, really? <laughs> and <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, what's interesting is we've been talking around, um, really, a book you wrote in 2011, um, Down We Go. The Refuge is, in a sense, the vision or the outcome of that that vision. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that journey? I really love that little book. Um, It's kind of a bigger book. Uh, We could probably trim it down a little, but that... The story of Down We Go is a, kind of a fun story because it's actually a mutual friend that we have who um, who said to me, this is like kind of early, not early, early on in the refuge, but 
chunky years in. Who's this mutual mystery? Dave thing? Runyon. Okay. Yeah, so I'll always remember it because I've known him forever. Yeah. I knew him, you know, when at my first church that I was the lay leader at. And so he said to me, I understand all the things you're against, that you're fighting against. I totally get it, Kathy. But I just want to keep hearing what you are for. And um, because when I was first blogging, you know, I have a lot of big feelings about the church. I'm very sad about the unhealthy systems that I see every direction. And I don't, I don't see, I know people are desiring to shift them, but I think that uh, a lot more work could be done. And I think there's lots of people who aren't desiring because it's working still. So there's no right. motivation. There's no right. pain. That's right. There's it's no, working very well for some people. It is. Yeah. And so seeing that perpetuated is really hard for me. So I don't have any trouble saying that I, in my early years of blogging, like I just had a lot of pent up like anger, um, dissatisfaction, frustration. And, you know, I needed to say what needed to be said. And I could see, I didn't work for a big church anymore. So I could. And I said it freely. So out of that, um, he did make me think that I knew in my heart that I knew what I was for. And we were living it out here. It wasn't theory. We were living it out. And so I wrote a, um, a eight-post series on my blog called What Could Be. What Could Be. And it had eight practices. And so it were, you know, if we extended love and mercy and compassion and uh, welcoming pain and honoring doubt and pursuing justice and practicing equality and uh, cultivating creativity and celebrating freedom. You know, they were all in there. And so I knew when I wrote it, like it kind of came together. Um, and so that's kind of how that ended up happening. I had a friend who was starting an indie publishing company and he's like, do you want to do this? And so this was his first book, but it forced me to pull it together. Yeah. And really, when it's all said and done, it's kind of like, how do you live the ways of the Beatitudes and the 12 steps in community and live with all of this big, hot mess and trust that none of the old measures work? Out of everything in Down We Go, I almost love that the most. It's just, this is a long game. Yes, that's This right. is a total tortoise. Yeah. The tortoise has to just keep going, and the hares will be like sprinting past you, and you know. But it's like knowing that this Jesus way is super slow; it's not fast. Yeah, it's more about agriculture than mass production. Oh, it just is. Mm -hmm. And you think about even organic food. You know, organic food is really tended to. It mm -hmm. takes a lot of nurturing, mm -hmm. but it's also wild, and it just doesn't look the same. And it doesn't bear so-called fruit year-round. No. It's the seasons of dormancy and... All kinds yeah. of things. So yeah, yeah, there's tons of metaphors in there. That's interesting. I just had lunch yesterday with a guy we're getting to know each other, and he, he, having done the big rapid church thing, is now deep into parish kind of work and highly local and small. Mm -hmm. And once it gets very big, next time for next parish. And he spent most of his time between the big successful church and the parish hanging out with Catholic priests. And he just kept saying to them, you're all doing what we all actually wanted to do. You don't do spreadsheets or graphic design or you're just with people That's right. and with God. And it's, yeah, it's yeah. endearing. And so people think, so, you know, people look and go, why don't you do this? How come you don't try that? And always universally, I will say, if you do that, you get in, um, you know, strong as in the not so good use of the word powerful, charismatic leaders who want to do their thing. And they right. might gather people, right. but what kind of people will they gather and how will they gather them? And they always think of my friends here at the refuge and what that means for them. Yeah, would they be able to be in that community? Yeah. And no, they'll get forced out mm -hmm. because that's how it works. And so that is just the, that's kind of the laws of nature. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I sometimes call it church of the fittest. And um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good term. <laughs> I have a blog post about that. I think that might be in Down We Go too, but it's really true. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that kind of like the slow, you know, we're like the lowest on the food chain, but we're still making it because we're practicing, I think, at the 
the deepest level of just like a, a raw humanity together. But it doesn't mean you don't need systems and structures and healthy leadership. And, you know, it's uh, that's that or goes back to the organic thing. It's like you it needs nurturing and you do need people who will f- cultivate that. Yeah. And that's where I've kind of maybe over the years leaned into leadership is really important, but it's a bottom, you know, it's downward, down we go, it's downward mobility, it's from the down uh, places, not a life of ascent, it's a life of descent. So in family systems theory, one of the reasons I really like it is it says that there's acute anxiety, which is when you're actually under threat. So let's say you're driving on the interstate, someone in front of you stops, you think you're going to crash into them, you have a physiological reaction. That's because you really were under threat, but it's always temporary. Mm -hmm. Then it goes away and you can pull over and catch your breath. Family systems theory is interested in chronic anxiety which is perceived threat, not real threat. Mm. You're actually not under threat, and it's not temporary, it's ever-present. And so family systems theory is trying to help people recognize the amount of chronic anxiety they're carrying that they may not be aware of, that they become way too patient with, way too tolerant of, because they didn't realize we don't have to put up with this crap anymore. So that's just a general primer for the question. So the first question for you is, uh, oh, oh, and the other interesting thing, Kathy, is systems theory. Bowen says, the guy that founded it, your body doesn't know the difference between mm. acute and chronic. <laughs> That's where it gets really interesting. <laughs> so physiologically for you, would you say anxiety begins in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? Um, for me, I would say spinning mind. Okay. So tell me more. How do you know when the difference between thinking about something and being on an anxiety treadmill in your mind? Well, I just know when it's like I keep coming back to the same loop over and over again. If I just think harder about it, I'm going to be better. Yeah. Does it If I can figure, I always know I'm in trouble when I use the word that I use a lot. Let me, I want to figure it I out. I need to figure this out. Yes, and that is something that a friend of mine who does uh, School of Life, she's at, ther- at the Rafi School of Life, she's a therapist, life coach, and the difference between our minds and our souls. Yeah. And always our my mind is, I'll figure it out, when my soul is actually speaking gut, you know, whatever language you yeah. want to use. Yeah. It's like it's trying to say something, and I'm trying to figure it out up yeah. there in my brain. Does it ever work? Do you ever think your way to peace? Never. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, good. Uh, second question, it's related to chronic anxiety. Uh, if it's a perceived threat, that means that in any given moment, we think we need something that we don't actually need. So for example, in my life, I need to be liked all the time. I need to be understood. It's so hard for me if someone misunderstands me, particularly if they misunderstand my motives, I get super anxious. I've got about 30 to 50 of these. What is something in your life that you think you need in any given moment that you actually don't need? Well, so I'm an Enneagram 2 with a three wing, for those that know Enneagram. And um, so mine is just, I think that I need people to love me and like me and kind of feel that um, connection with them. And if I understand an Enneagram 2, it would even be the point of uh, being useful to them. Is that right? Yeah, some. Being I mean, of some, service or? Yeah, some of that isn't as strong for me these days over a lot of time. But but for sure, 100% like, connected, feel loved by me, feel loved by them. And okay. so like living with that, any kind of disconnect <laughs> on relationship is, oh my gosh, it's it the worst. Kills you. Kills me. And so really learning how to live with broken relationship where people disapprove and don't even want relationship and things that feel really violating to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, the hours of head, heart, anxiety, stress over that 
is so wasted. And so I am learning to live with that. Yeah. But it is not easy. Yeah. I always want to come to how, what can I do? This, that's more, the two part. What more that's can I do? That's the helper. What can I do to fix it? Yeah. And so learning to like set that down, unclench my fists, take a deep breath, and don't do anything when you're so used to being the generator of energy and connection. And so my work has been to change that, and it's really angst-provoking. <laughs> That's a great answer. I think a lot of people can relate to that, particularly the, um, the solution to this problem is me trying harder. Yeah. That's a common... Oh, uh, it's so true. And, you know, that what's been really healthy for me, because I've done recovery for so long, pulling out every relationship trick... I know, yeah. and it's a good practice when you can do all those things and they do not they work. Don't work. And that's helpful because yep. you come back to the first step, which is we're powerless, you know? So I think it's just a great reminder. The tricks, they're great, they're healthy skills. I'm not discounting them, but just because you apply them doesn't mean that you'll get the outcome that will relieve your anxiety. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In, in the work I do, um, I've identified 20 sources of anxiety that are universal. If you're in this situation, you're going to be anxious. It's almost like someone has started a generator that generates mm. anxiety. And so, for example, as I was hearing you talk, what made me think of them was one of the strongest generators of anxiety is cognitive dissonance. Mm. When you and another person have the same set of facts and you see them so differently. Yeah. And then you just get so anxious. Um and, and then the other category that you just touched on, so that's the um, universal sources, but then there's unique sources that you and I are wired differently based on childhood and all kinds of complex factors. Some things make you anxious that don't make me anxious, right. vice versa. One of the universal sources of anxiety is making a mistake in public. Mm. You make a mistake in front of people, it's going to generate anxiety. <laughs> does, that, uh, does that trigger a story oh for you, Kathy? Oh my gosh, I have like the worst story that happened to me. Let's hear it. Um, so I was speaking at a big conference with a lot of pros. And so, and you know, I've done a lot of speaking and stuff, but the truth is, is that it's not my, my real gig. And so I really took like a lot of energy just to go play that way. And then I got asked a question related to race and an author who, tell me an author who was not white, male, American is, was the question. And I, I, who formed you? And I came back with Jean Vignier, my guy, who's a white you know, he's, French Canadian, yes. Yeah. And so, um, and my brain couldn't catch up. And then I realized it and I was like, oh my gosh, how did this just happen? But you know, it all happens so fast. And yeah. It's in front of 1500 people. Yeah. And um, I couldn't do anything about it. It was horrible. You're like, you're paralyzed internally? Or I, you... No, I tried to back, I backtracked. And then I um, told something that wasn't really true that I hadn't read the, that many things and I needed to. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's not true. Oh. I've been in examining race and privilege class for a year. Yeah. I've read all of these people. Mark Charles came to my church. None At of it moment, was accessible. Yeah. Nothing. Until and you were trying to fall on your sword by the sound of it. I was kind of trying, yeah, to go, yeah. gosh, I know. And and it, it's not doesn't mean I don't have way more to learn, but it's like I actually could have listed some other people, <laughs> and I didn't. And there was nothing. The, the part that was so significant for me is there was zero I could do, because what would happen is it would make it about me, and there's a whole thing about white fragility. There's a whole thing about right. just you know it's not right. all about me. Right. So it was probably one of, I will, of course, remember it forever. Um, so that's and, such a great example because it, it, um, it generates another universal source, which is a double bind. And you were in a double bind in that moment. There was actually no way out for you. Either, either option you lose. So that generates anxiety. Yes. Anytime someone's in a double bind, they're anxious. Yep. But also it pushes on that need you have to feel emotionally connected. And Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and the reality is, so like in any of the conversations that I would have, what am I going to do? I'm going to make it about me. And so, and as a, you know, resourced, white, privileged woman, um, 
I just had to live with it. And so what I did do, oh gosh, it was rough. And I went back to my room and I called my people. And so, and I'm so glad I called my people. And my husband is really funny. And so he just totally made me laugh. And, um, but I, the truth was, is it was really hard. I couldn't yeah. sleep. Yeah. There goes the spin. Yeah. What can I do? Let me think harder about yes. it. Yes. And it actually, like, in any of my comfortable networks, I probably could figure out, you know, but this was, like, another everything. Mm. And it's, there just were no options. Yeah. How long ago was this? Uh, was about seven months ago. Wow. And so what I did do when I got there is I had one, my agent was there, and she's a friend. And so I, I processed with her. And it was so good because I was able she could understand my double bind she could understand my double bind and so I had to hold my head high and just live with it that's right and oh my gosh good for you I needed that I needed to do it I needed to practice the resilience that I'm always talking about right and I needed to just live with I I couldn't say but just so you know you know my husband's brown my kids are brown I (laughs) I do a missional community Mark Charles is at my church you know I (laughs) I had oh I had the thing lined up like here and so um but I also didn't want to pretend like it didn't exist because um it is it does show something blaring I'm not going to ignore that it didn't and you didn't want to self-marginalize. No. Mm-hmm. So what I did do is I, um, I worked on a post on my blog and mm-hmm. just told the story. Yeah. And that helped. I knew everyone wouldn't see it. Actually, some of the people that I probably offended were never read it. But if I went there, I'm just perpetuating the same thing. My work. You can't to send anchor. it to them. No, yeah, that's no, right. I didn't do any of it. I just anchored and um, wavering. Oh my gosh! I mean, it was so bad, and I knew that that was probably what I needed in my story in general because I have something to point to of like how exposed that was. So exposing. That was probably one of the most exposed I've ever felt, where I just couldn't control it. And I moved on. But I can't tell you, I can't say that when I think of it, I don't wish I could redo that. Sure. And I, you know, all of those things. Like, you know, then then you go back to your head a little bit. Well, maybe I could do this. And, you know, you just live with humans are humans and you make mistakes. And it's good practice. It's really good practice. (laughs) That's a really, that's, thank you. That's a good one. It sucks. But it's good. It's a (laughs) good I think you gave us a gift, so I'm grateful for it. All right. Mentally, I'm counting my questions. Number four, you're almost done. You're doing so well. I can sit and talk to you forever, Um, so it's easy. All right. The other half of my work isn't internal, it's group. Okay. You you already do this, Kathy. You can walk into a room and you know what's going on. Uh, I think it's a tremendous gift of family system, Siri. It trains you to pay more attention to the way people relate than what they're saying. And the, the big theory is we listen to words, but we react to process. Mm-hmm. And so it's bringing in the unspoken, making it spoken. And uh, my theory is that anxiety is always contagious in a group, and the group catches it the way you catch a cold. And oftentimes, without a non-anxious leader, the most anxious person in the room is the most powerful. Uh, where have you seen anxiety be caught in a group? I think I see it all the time. Um, if it's not a controlled group, so when I say controlled, I just say a group with some guidelines. So I'm a huge proponent of guidelines. So in that moment, you don't. That doesn't happen as much. Yeah, like because, in twelve step. Because yeah, you set the right. And a lot of the, the refuge top. gatherings have some similar guidelines. Yeah. So you don't have that like domination thing. Mm-hmm. Happen. What about when you've been in a setting where you're not providing the guidelines, but you're a member and you see a catch? It's hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think what I usually see catch is um, two things. And uh, so this, 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 this happens in our wider community too. Um, I think the um, anxiety of losing control of something. And so, you know, someone just needing to um, 
make it be in control. So it kind of goes back to, I have that too. I feel that. And especially as like a facilitator, I always want to step in and make something better. So it kind of goes back to the previous thing. There are times you just can't. And you have to just live with weird things happening in a group. That's what I noticed when I was a chaplain. Sorry, I cut you off there. But um, like, why do I need to go home and take a nap? All I did was sit there. But it's because I'm stopping myself. (laughs) That's what you're describing. Oh, totally. And sometimes, like, and I, you know, I'm connected into a lot of networks, not just the refuge. So I go to a lot of meetings with a a really diverse mix of people, and some are facilitated really well, and some just aren't. And oh my gosh, and I have this, this is just part of my two controllingness. It's not healthy. I'm not like saying it's a good idea. But I'm at a wedding, you know, and I just want it to be a certain way because I can feel all the anxiety of everybody who's hungry and, you know, is waiting for something to happen. And you're like two hours into taking your pictures. I know that sounds like a dumb story. No, that's a great, I know exactly what you're talking about. This is group anxiety. And so the the truth is, is that uh, when I'm the leader, then I can take care of that a little bit. Um, but when I'm not, I can't. And as a leader, the false thing that I sometimes do is I try, I can pick up on somebody struggling and try and make all these adjustments to help them. And that's sometimes not the best thing to do. And so, you know, it kind of works both ways. It can be um, picking that up as a leader or being in a group that you have no control over. Um, but everyone feels it. And I think that that part is always gives everyone anxiety. That's good. Um, I think another source of anxiety is is almost as simple as input output. Too much output, not enough input. Mm. Um, You work hard in in integrated life. Um, So the next two questions are about just enjoying life and love. Mm. So when in your life do you feel most fully loved? I feel most fully loved just in relationship and fun and connection with people, you know, that know and love me. And that can be a whole mix, but where it's just kind of un, unagended. Okay. You know, just together. Yeah, just together, equal, playing, laughing, having a conversation, just where it's not, uh, there's no, there's no big, like, we're here to work to on this, this together. Thing. Yeah, we're just together. So like in terms of love, that's where I feel it. Where it's just reciprocal, there's total reciprocity and mutuality. And, you know, it's just you're sitting at an equal table together and uh, kind of in the moment present. So that's where I feel love. Where I feel joy and goodness is when I'm in the water. Yeah, so that's my next question. Okay. Great. Because uh, you you have now famously in the water a lot. Uh, my final question is: Yeah, w- uh, what geographical place and what activity just makes you feel alive? Well, anywhere on the water for me. So my husband and I we have water heels. So we teach people. Um, it's called water sports empowerment for the soul. So we teach people how to um, push themselves and be vulnerable and get in their bodies on the water, so in all different ways. So in some ways, it marries the two because when you're on the boat, it's so, uh, all those things are smashed down. So I actually feel all my love and all my joy in the same place. On the boat? On the boat. Not. You're not saying, why is that? What's the difference between on the boat versus in the water? It's be, Well, the boat's on the water. Okay. So that's all I mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When we're out there okay. doing water heels, it like blends the two together. You're just, you're, yeah. you're just so happy. Yeah. And so for me, like the water is a life force, so I can get it anywhere. Um, but I learned how to kite surf this last year, which was super vulnerable. It's like one of the best metaphors I've ever had because I had to learn for a long time and suffer to get now I don't and I see why people give up because you just feel so vulnerable and beaten down and this is too hard and then all of a sudden it came together so I was like I'm not giving up I knew I could get it 
And, but it has a really steep learning curve and, you know, especially when you're, I'm 51 learning, you know, some things, but everyone has it and it's just a hard sport to learn. But once you learn, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, this wasn't as, why was this so hard? And so I've been thinking about that metaphor in so many ways that you just kind of got to live with the tension if you know that that's the direction you want to go. And it's totally worth it. But water for me, like if I don't have my water, I can't actually do this job very well. It's a real, and Jose is the same way. That's my husband because he works really hard. He has a lot of pressures. And when we're out there, it's like we release it all. Our phones are gone. We're totally present. We're never thinking about our future. So the anxiety, it's one place where honestly, it's completely gone. Yeah, I believe that. All the way. There's no room for it. It doesn't happen. I ne- I can't really tell you where I felt anxious on the boat, it except totally, for I looked at my phone or something. <laughs> it totally makes sense to me. I, I, I think, this is an audacious statement, I think I'm the first person to attempt a theology of anxiety in, in my book. I, <laughs> yeah. I have a whole chapter on how to, what's the spiritual nature of anxiety, and it makes sense to me because... Um, the opposite, like I believe anxiety is a spiritual force that competes in the space where we commune with God. Mm. And I don't think you can attend to your anxiety and to God at the same time. And so it makes sense to me that you feel most fully loved and alive because you're, you're connected. Yeah. yeah. I love your, I love your theology of anxiety. Thing. I'm excited so, about it. It's, yeah. it's been freeing for me to chase it down and try to make sense of it. Right. Yeah. This has been fun for me. I, um, we keep teasing people who put a cap on things, and here am I going to put a cap on something. Well, you have to. It's your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, th- I, I knew I was really looking forward to chatting with you, and I, I thought we'd cover a lot of ground. But the thing that keeps coming to mind is your tenacity. You, you have a wonderful tenacity that I think um, has really come through. So that's been fun to listen to. Well, it's been a long road, Steve. <laughs> This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.